It's always good to be on the same page. You're listening to Most Certainly True, a podcast of Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Milwaukee. We are joining together in an effort this summer called Same Page Summer. We are reading the New Testament in these summer months and would like to invite you to join us. We'd love for you to be on the same page. Find the reading plan at gracedowntown.org and get on the same page with us, growing together in God's Word. podcast world to another episode of most certainly true podcast i'm pastor brian hockman uh, one of the pastors here at grace in downtown milwaukee and i'm joined by my two fellow pastors how are you guys doing today great good to see you pastor hockman pastor hebner here and uh the light and privilege with my brother pastors yeah, and this is Pastor Strong. I'm happy to be joining all three of you guys. It's a special occasion to have all three of us in here at the same time. Yeah, it is. It's always fun. Yeah, now we need to have our team complete. I've got a phone a... call with our potential fourth pastor scheduled right after this. So all right. Beautiful. I will um, throw all the weight that I can behind yes. him. Uh, twist his arm. <laughs> yes, I will twist as hard yeah. as I can See in what a the... loving way yeah. to get. Do your Holy Spirit twisting and <laughs> dove flying and... That would be a blessing, however the God the Spirit directs it. But uh, this is our current pastoral staff, and what a what a joy it is to work with you guys and be together and do some podcasting. Sure and is. we get to talk about, well, let's be honest, I don't know where you're at with this, but if somebody put a gun to my head and say, name your favorite New Testament book, you know, I'd, I'd lean toward one of the Gospels. You know, we've talked about Gospels are just so the life of Christ and everything, but I, and I, and I love... You know, like Ephesians. I love these it's other like letters. Pick your favorite child. I don't know you that know, you just, can make me. <laughs> right. They're they're all unique and they're all. But but if I had to, it's like in, in the whole scriptures. I in the old. I would say the Psalms, my favorite. But the Roman the Romans. This letter is just. It's just a special place in our hearts, and it's a, such a beautiful and well crafted and uh, powerful, powerful, deep and gorgeous letter. Yeah, uh, just amazing. Well, and really, you know, if you only had one book that was left of the Bible, you would you'd get the whole idea of of what our place before God is and what Jesus yeah. has done to fix it. And that's a good way to what say that it. Life looks like today. So, I mean, yeah. if, if you only had one left, Romans is probably the one you'd want. That's the one you it want. It really does cover everything. It does in a really nice way. Yeah, you could do a Bible information class based on it's, the Book of Romans. It, you really, really, really easily. Right. Right. Uh, when you think about it, our our Bible information class is other. You know, we introduce the sacraments and stuff like that. But uh, and he doesn't have a huge emphasis on that. But yet, uh, you could do the major doctrines of the Holy Scriptures. Right I've, there. Yeah, and I've sometimes called it the doctrinal book of the Bible. Yeah, uh, because it does lay out all the the basic teachings of of law and gospel mm-hmm. and justification and sanctification and uh, Christian life and everything else. It really, Maybe it'd be fun. Really well. In our podcast, to talk about why it's set up that way, why Paul wrote that. So, I want to talk a little bit about um, the background, where he was in his three journeys, and where he was when he wrote, and, and anything like that. You yeah. have some comments on that? Go ahead. Yeah, that'd be good. So, Apostle Paul writes this um, on the third missionary journey. Third journey. Um, on the way home, he references some of the um, cities that have already contributed to the the donation for the poor Christians back in, in Jerusalem. Was it a famine famine in Jerusalem? Yeah, that yeah, was right. what was causing the poverty there. Um, and God's people around the uh, the world at that time were, were even some that weren't doing all that well themselves were being generous mm-hmm. for Christians around the world, which I think is a cool testimony to yeah. the the oneness in Christ that, that the early church shared. These people are strangers, and I've never met them before, and I can't relate to what life is like for them, but um, I, I hear that they are in need, and so I will reach out to them and, and serve them in love. Yeah. That's a cool thing. I think it's amazing how the Lord directed it that after his first journey into southern Turkey, southern Asia Minor, and back, and then the, the second journey, he's going to get into Europe and then take the boat back from Greece. But this third journey, he spent some time, two years plus, almost three in Ephesus, and he's so concerned about Corinth that he writes that 
first letter across the Aegean Sea, and then he's going to want to visit them. So he goes north and crosses the Bosporus, the Straits, the Dardanelles, and he's in northern Greece, Macedonia. And here's things turned out. So he writes the second letter back to handle one last problem about super apostles. And then he personally gets to Corinth. And he's only there probably about three months. But from there, he has determined now, we're at what, 56, late 57 spring, somewhere in there. He's determined he's going to write. He'd like to go personally, but he's going to write to the Christians in Rome because he knows that this city is, we're talking, we don't have stats exactly, but what, one to four million people. And there were there were many pockets of Jewish people there, but there were pockets of Christians who had, on their own, gathered in a little house churches, in a little small groups, I guess we'd call them nowadays. There wasn't one major congregation, and apparently no apostolic presence to give them a solid doctrinal foundation. And that's the background. He's going to write the apostolic foundation, and here comes the letter, which is why it's arranged like it is, I believe, you know, to give these people the basics. You want to be close to God now and forever? Here it is. Click, click, click. You know, it's interesting, you know, what you brought up about, you know, these small pockets of Christians sure. in there. You almost wonder where they came from, but it kind of makes sense because Rome was the center of really the yeah. world at the time, the uh-huh. Roman Empire. And so you you probably had these these people who were interacting with Christians in some of these other places and cities mm-hmm. that, that the churches have already been established, yeah. like maybe Thessalonica or Corinth mm-hmm. or Ephesus or Asia Minor there, maybe even as far as Jerusalem. And and now we're going back home in, into Rome and, and yeah. almost these little house churches all that, over that he's then writing. How, how do people end up living in Washington, D.C.? I mean, those are we have a lot of American citizens, but there's a lot of nationals and foreign foreign, right. you know, visitors and whatever. And it becomes that big a empire capital that Rome does. And they they had not had someone who sat down with them and walked through the scriptures and the basic teaching. So Paul was going to write and fill that gap for them, wanting to personally visit, of course. He got there under different circumstances. Yeah, by being not exactly the way Arrested in Jerusalem right. and two years later taken there on trial. But uh, So he made it, but he writes this letter probably, I'm going to say, four years before he personally got there. Yeah. I find it interesting that the letter's addressed to Gentiles, um, that mm-hmm. it's, it's Paul in chapter 1 is talking about how he he's preaching this gospel to these Gentiles who are there, and obviously not exclusively. It's yeah. not for Gentile ears only, but mm-hmm. um, I mean that tells you a little bit about the makeup of this church. Normally, Paul, when he was planting a church or new to a city, he'd go to the synagogue, he'd uh-huh. tell the Jewish people that this Messiah that you're looking for, he's already come, he's Jesus. Here, here it is, and then that became the base of operations, and they would go and and preach to the Gentiles in the city. Yeah. Uh, with Paul not having been there before, there wasn't that opportunity. Um, and the fact that he's addressing this to Gentiles m- makes you kind of think that these house churches must be mostly, if not exclusively, made up of Gentile believers, um, whether they were from a different church that had come or, or got to know um no, got got to know Jesus and come to the faith in, in a different way. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not totally sure. Um, what I find intriguing is how Paul becomes familiar with their presence. Um, is this, uh, maybe you guys have some thoughts on this, but is this just a well-known throughout the, the empire that there's these Christians that are strong enough to be starting to form together into these little churches? Are, are there some people who had been members of those small group churches that are now mm-hmm. have interacted with Paul in his journeys in some other ways? How, how is it that that Paul has this awareness enough of, of what's going on in Rome that he is moved to send this mm-hmm. letter? I would say chapter 16 gives us the biggest clue on that, don't you think? Because he's got all these greetings to people that he knew by name. And he either had met them or they were you know, co-workers, colleagues, or something, that he, he was aware of their service, their commitment to Jesus, and he's also then sending greetings to those people from people who are with him. That, But chapter 16 is this, this whole chapter of greetings. So that that has to be the answer to the question. We had a great one there, Pastor Hockman, about how would he know is probably uh, everything that you suggested is probably a multiple, you know, yeah. He's got a relationship. He's with got a relationship people. with all different kinds of people, and, and and like you said, Pastor Strong, it's it's a town. It's very eclectic, and pe- they come from all over. And Paul's probably rubbed elbows with these people all over the place, so he's aware. <laughs> 
you you have both had this experience. Someone comes into the office and says, "Yeah, I got job transferred. We're moving." Yeah. Sure. Help me with what to do. You know, are there Wells churches there? Whatever you can picture, Paul doing this and saying, <laughs> "Well, here's what you do: you start a church in your house." Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, just thinking about this, this is what it was like when I went out to Las Vegas. I mean, uh-huh. here we are. We're we're going to the north side of of Las Vegas, and we had a little core group. Well, how did this core group get there? Well, they are Wells transplants from somewhere else, <laughs> someplace in, else in the, our country, <laughs> who just happened to be all in the same area and said, "Well, sure. hey, we're going to start a church here." And uh, it wasn't long before. You know, especially in Las Vegas being so transient that they moved on in, in different areas of life then too. But you started with new people who actually now live there. And now mm-hmm. we've got a place where the gospel is being proclaimed and now we're going to connect with this community. And before you know it, you've got locals, you know, people yeah. who are, are there as a part of the church. So it's just kind of interesting though. And you see God's people being scattered out into the world. Yeah. Well, we're just going to build a church wherever we settle and, uh, and, and watch the gospel take root. It's really cool. Yeah, it makes you think of the diaspora where um, the persecutions that went mm-hmm. on in the early church and how God used that to, oh, yeah. okay, well, then we'll send people out and they'll take the gospel with them. And Acts guess what? Now eight, there's a right? whole lot more communities that are going to be familiar right. with Jesus. <laughs> nice yeah. try, Satan. Nice yep. try to destroy the church, but <laughs> you know I'm going to use we, it to make the church grow. You know how much we're thrilled and honored and humbled that people actually want to be part of Grace Church and our congregation grows and everything, and we are sad if people are going to be moved or leaving. But, you know, it's nice to be able to say to people, you know, that maybe they won't have a Gothic-style building or the kind of things that can happen here, but you, you can make a big impact wherever you move, mm-hmm. U.S. or even globally, and connect with fellow believers and uh, get involved in it. Maybe it is a mission church. Maybe it's a new start. And that's happened with over the decades with, you know, Grace members who've, become very active in other churches and we're very thankful for that opportunity that the gospel still works and paul had that experience yeah. in rome right alaska is a very transient place where i previously served and lots yeah. of military people that would do sure. their three-year tour and then be out and it's real easy to get disheartened at that and like oh you only get three years with these people you're just starting to get to know them and yeah. now they're going um but then you look at kingdom wide you zoom out a little bit and realize i can encourage these people to hit the ground running where they are <laughs> to jump on a, a service board or um to, to be able to to be an impact so the training that you do and the time you spend building these people up it's not wasted it's mm-hmm. not for nothing right. uh, but to know that they get to take that somewhere else right maybe they're the strong leader in the new place on day one um that's because of the work that God blessed you and privileged you to be able to to be a part of. So, yeah, and to be able to not just uh, like the, our ancestors did, our church ancestors did when this church began, they were just basically you know sucking up people who are like them. They spoke the German language and they're gathering a German Lutheran church, and that's how a lot of churches in the U.S. grew, whether it's Lutheran or other denominations. But um, to have now a sense of scattering like we had in the first century and saw in the Bible that like you're describing, Pastor Hockman, with Christians who might be traveling or moving, but then to not just look for like-minded people, people who think like I do and believe exactly the same, but also have that outreach mindset that says, well, yeah, if I'm establishing myself in new roots in a new church home and I'm in a different state far from Grace in Milwaukee, I'm I'm not just here to take care of myself and my family. I'm here, but I can share Jesus with people in my neighborhood like I did in Milwaukee I can I can help the church and the kingdom grow mm-hmm. that they have that outreach mindset and I'm thinking that the folks in Rome once you get a letter like this from Paul how can you not be more inviting and more outreach minded because we always talk about this as the big doctrine letter right well there's there's stuff at the end of the book where it's very practical how they live their life with fellow Christians and in the world and then also with we Christians so that's you know, he's intending them to be able to Im- take in the doctrine to heart, but then to live it and to have an impact. Do you think that was that was Paul's trade-off? Maybe if you go start a church in Rome, uh, I'll write you a letter someday. Has <laughs> that made it all worth it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. However, the circumstances, some of the little small groups. So he writes. But what a blessing for us, though. I mean, just the situation too that. Paul had not been here, nor had any other apostle yet been sure. to Rome. And so what does he do? He writes just a really solid, this is what Christ means for, for you and your life in relationship <laughs> with God. And man, what a blessing for us today now. Yeah. 
to to have this in front of us to just really clearly describe what that all looks like. Yeah, that li- those little churches that fledgling or, or not, or whether they were were off base on some of this and were being corrected, or this was just a general encouragement. But yeah, look at what God's done through them because they became the opportunity yeah. that Paul used to write this letter, and now thousands of years worth of his church have got, have gotten to read this awesome letter. Well, what you said, Pastor Strong, about, you know, isn't what a blessing for us, but that makes me think about the way the letter flows and how Paul designed it. So after the first chapters, first 17 verses, you know, he gets into the first section of the letter is from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 11. And um, he's he's starting where you would, where we find ourselves when we're doing Bible information class, spending a little more time, a little more emphasis, at least in my experience, uh, from many years ago, where you had a sense of people who want to learn about Jesus and want to learn about the Bible or learn about Lutheranism, they actually have an understanding of such a thing as sin and a need for the Savior, maybe a guilty conscience or you know whatever they were in some system of religion or some past experience where there was, you know, if you're naughty, God will get you that you know weird sort of view. But Paul pulls no punches and. Chapter one eighteen all the way through chapter three verse twenty it's this the the universal depravity of humankind you know that and if you if you want to know how this works Gentiles guess what the Jews are in this you're in this you're all in this all and he caps sinned. it off all short of the glory right yeah. and, and by saying that that the law's purpose is to make us aware and conscious of sin and uh, that but that first section he just I mean just think about that when when we want to talk about that. People are without excuse globally, anywhere on the planet, and, and ignoring that there is a true God. He addresses that right away in the beginning of, of this section in chapter 1, verse 18 and following. And, and he actually, at the end of chapter 1, isn't it amazing? It's almost like you're reading uh, the crime section or whatever of the newspaper. It sounds so contemporary with how people who've kicked God out of their life and out of their mind, out of their heart, how they act, how they behave, how they think. And it's just the depravity that's there that he describes and what happens when you lead a godless life. On your own, you're going to be separate from God, and then he's going to turn you over to even worse sinfulness. And it's it really sounds like you're reading a contemporary newspaper of a crime section. It's just bad. Well, and I like what you said there because that really comes out clearly in that section is that these sins are, are a result of you leaving God behind yeah, and forsaking him. And so this is what it looks like when you don't have God in your life, and it's the list of sins. Yeah, that, and the, yeah, that the emptiness and, the, and the, that people need to recognize. When we do our Bible information, we want people to know, you know, okay, I'm a nice person. No, <laughs> you are born rotten, dead, spiritually, a, you're a corpse. You're, and I was that way. You were that way. We were all that way. We all enter this world in such, what's, this, what's the line, right? In such desperate need of a Savior that's what he's he's going to hammer that home in these first chapters of the book and of the letter. Wow, it just and he pulls no point, just really bang. Right, because without that, it doesn't matter. The yeah. gospel doesn't matter. Who right? cares? Without an understanding of <laughs> what our depravity is by nature and that there is no escaping yeah. sin's curse. Uh, otherwise, you end up with the Pharisees that are looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, thanks, but I'm good enough <laughs> that I don't need a Savior. I'm just going to get to heaven based on right. my obedience. Um, Paul is going to pull that carpet out for sure. He and, did. And make sure that there's a clear understanding of the state of every single human being. He could nature. write to the Jewish people like you just talked about, where they have a Pharisaic attitude that they're okay on their own and their own doing. And he could write to the Gentiles who would like to have the excuse, well, I didn't hear about God. Well, no, nobody had. And then, then he, he quotes Psalm 14 at the end of this section. You know, there was no one who does good, not even one. And then he wraps it up in verse 20 with the law. It makes us conscious of sin, and that's its purpose. And then we're hungering. So chapter 3, verse 21, into the end of chapter 5, is the beautiful doctrine of universal justification. That, that's the technical word for that we're declared innocent freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that, you know, the, the, such memorable passages, but what a rich section we have in chapters 3 to the end and 4 when he goes into then, now that, that goodness of our God that comes with the righteousness declared to us, not by works, not by the law, but by a gift, 
it's ours by faith. And then chapter four is all the the Abraham example of faith. And yep. man, that's just such a beautiful. Then if that's not enough, he caps off the section in five with those stunning statements. He begins the chapter with, you know, you know, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who we've gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the glory of not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we, well, the NIV today says boast, but rejoice in it because we know that suffering produces, produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts. And then, you know, if if, if that's not enough, it, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone who th- thinks they're right die for anybody else. Maybe a good person might. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. To have that in chapter 5 and to move on with verses 12 to 19 about this distinction between the disobedience of one man, Adam, compared to the obedience of one man, Christ. The one trespass of Adam brings a verdict of condemnation. The one verdict of righteousness brings justification for all that's all in chapter this is all this section from chapter 3 verse 21 into chapter 5 it's like wow the 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 beautiful doctrine of of we're declared innocent justification it's mind-boggling well what a comfort too because in those first chapters where you're just nailed over the head (laughs) with just how much you have failed to do and you haven't kept the law and you deserve only god's wrath to now transition into these these next chapters, chapter yeah. middle chapter three and, and and following, where there's such a clear emphasis on the fact that you still haven't done anything, but Christ has done it all for Did it you. All for you. That even when you were dead in your sins, you know, yeah, Christ Christ died for you. Can you imagine if Paul wrote this letter, and he stopped at chapter three verse twenty and said, "Well, have a nice day." Oh man, <laughs> how many of them no are gonna hope. you know like just are they gonna go out and like shoot themselves in the head? What do they do? I'm gonna. <laughs> Fall off a cliff. This is, I mean, if that stopped there at verse 20 in chapter 3 with the bad news. Yep. Now you're, you know, have you ever done that in like with our new setup in Bible information class? We have that first lesson on sin. And then we get done after that hour. We know the next lesson is grace, but the people who are kind of new to it don't. And then you say, well, do you want to come back? <laughs> well, they, most people are going to say, no, I don't want to come back for yeah. lesson two. <laughs> I usually make them give me a two lesson commitment. Since the first one's going to be all about <laughs> sin, said Jesus is not going to make too much too much of an appearance in this first lesson. But yeah. you need to promise to come back because he's you got to hear the good news. He's right. there abundantly in lesson yeah. two. But there's no way I will appreciate what Jesus did unless I know I have that desperate need, and I'm 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 going to end up in hell if I don't have Jesus. And so that has to be hammered clearly because my inborn sense is I'm not that bad, yeah. right? You know. But Paul really does a great job in this letter of making it very clear in the first part, the, the universal depravity and sinfulness, but then our need for this, and then now in that next chunk, wow, what comfort, what blessing, what peace we have. And you have all you need right there. And uh, well, it's he just... He really makes it clear that it's not by what we do yet still, but it's <laughs> because of what Jesus has done, and this is yours through faith. Yeah. Believe this. Trust this. You know, there's a lot of people that I've run into, and I'm sure you've seen this in your ministries, where uh, maybe they had some kind of a church background, maybe not, but they hear that bad news, and then they get this longing for, I need hope, I need rescue, and then they hear about Jesus. And then they're so thrilled, but now what, right? What difference does this make in my life? And you always get, I don't know always, that's probably too um, forceful an adverb, you get people, and you've run into them too, Okay, so he's given me complete forgiveness. I have my status changed. I'm standing before God, right, declared right. But how are we going to stop people from sinning? How are, how are we going to, you know, people are still going to run crazy, aren't they? Well, then we get into the next chapters, which is chapters 6 and 7 and the first part of 8, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have sanctification, which is uh, the growth that we have and what about those powerful statements that he has right from the very beginning when he ties baptism into what Jesus did for us, chapter 6, verse 4, right? You're baptized into his death to be raised to a new life. And that takes a whole, that gives us a whole new meaning on that beautiful and blessed sacrament. And then it changes us from slavery to sin to slavery uh, to, to God, which is really freedom. Which is a unique illustration to use, but I, I like that picture is that you've got to be a slave to something. 
And you think about it, I am I'm a slave to one thing or the other in this <laughs> life. So Paul sets them both before you. He says, are you going to be a slave to sin yeah. and Satan, or are you going to be a slave to God, which, as you described, is the freedom that we have uh, as forgiven children of God. And then as we live in this world, you know, he caps off that chapter 6 with that famous passage. That we know, this, you know, you could say that the whole Bible is summarized in one verse. Wages of sin is death, gift of God, eternal life, bad news, good news. But transitioning right into using marriage as an example where, you know, if your commitment to each other is broken, that's a horrible thing. And it's also if your commitment to your God is horrible. And so now chapter 7 is all about the wrestling we have. Because every day, isn't it a struggle? Isn't it true? I mean, it's oh, not yeah. just because of stuff around us, COVID or whatever. But in my own heart, that's the biggest struggle. Well, it's great to hear, you know, I always love the section in chapter 7, um, starting at like verse 14 where Paul yeah. goes, the things I don't want to do, I do. do. The things oh. I do not want to do, I, I do. And, and you just see this back, you almost have to read it three or four times just to <laughs> make sure you're following <laughs> along. But you get it because this is the internal wrestling that I That's my, He's describing my, me. Yeah. And, and to hear Paul say this is something that he wrestled with as, as a, an apostle of God, and, and I wrestle with this. And mm-hmm. then, you know, at the end of this, you almost just want to throw up your hands like, like Paul almost he does. Did. What, what wretched man I am, right? right? What, what do I Who do? can rescue me from this body of death? And then here's the answer. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, yeah. Wow. That's powerful pronouns in, in chapter 7, <laughs> right. to hear the apostle Paul as the one, no, no this is my struggle. This yeah. is, this is yeah. the war that tears me apart every day. Um, Right, that's relatable. <laughs> yeah, I get it, that. You know, we we are Lutherans, and so we do appreciate what Martin Luther experienced in his life. And you just think about that, that he had this sense, God's holy, I'm not, and he's just scared to death. So he had that law part, you know, the first part of Romans down pretty much from what he had learned growing up. And his longing to be close to God and knowing it's impossible, just impossible, until his study of the Bible, which connects this psalm studies with Romans, and he finds that God gives us and declares us righteous. But then it made a difference. He he was able to talk about Martin Luther, too, just like Paul, this internal struggle daily. And Luther would put it in his terms, right? It's daily repentance, right? which is really what, he's talk, what Paul's talking about in chapter 7. And really, isn't it when Luther came to an understanding of one of the main themes of the book of Romans? That was the light bulb that went on, this righteousness of God. Yeah. Uh, he lived most of his life thinking that that was his job. It was his job mm-hmm. to produce the righteousness yep. of God, to become righteous, to make himself something that was appealing and desirable to God. Yeah. And the story that I recall was that Psalm 71, you know, because he was teaching the Psalms and he was familiar with it, but it puzzled him in the beginning of Psalm 71, where, where the psalmist is praying, deliver me in your righteousness. Well, how can God deliver, rescue, save us in connection with his righteousness when his righteousness is scary and holiness yeah, and it's going to condemn me? It right. doesn't make any sense. How can I be saved, rescued, in connection with holiness and a demand for that? And that's so the light bulb goes on and he goes to Romans in chapter 1 and then in chapter 3 where it's not just righteousness demanded but given. There's yep. uh, you, uh, you have a good sense of the history there, Pastor Hockman, of... Luther's struggle, but it's it struck me as we're talking in the podcast that his life experience and the way he would write Martin Luther is so parallel to what Paul describes in chapter 7, the struggle that we all experience. But isn't it interesting how Paul writes this about our life of growth in chapter 6, 7, and 8? That as soon as he identifies that the tension is there, slavery to sin, slavery to Christ— and six, and then seven, this internal, oh, the good I want to do, I don't do, the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing, Urgh. and then right away, chapter eight, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And I consider, you know, we're heirs with Christ in verses 17 to 16, 17, 18, and then, and then uh, in 18, I consider that the glory we have in Christ is not, you know, the sufferings we now go through is not worth comparing the glory we have in Jesus. Yep. Wow! It's not wow! About, you know, it's talking about the struggles that you're going to have in this world. You know, how do I live yeah. in this world? And and yeah, those man, chapter eight, yeah, and those that section of of verses. What comfort? Is, yeah, and I think that's one that I know I've found myself turning to a bunch uh, over the last few months when you're just dealing with so much <laughs> junk going on around the yeah. world in our world and everything else. And man, here's a beautiful reminder: this suffering that we might go through, mm-hmm. whether it's a physical health thing or you know, just challenges to our daily life or whatever else it is, not worth comparing. I, I thought that uh, the way I've usually outlined it, at least in my mind and I'm on paper too, is, you know, after the introductory first 17 verses, chapter 1, 18 to 320 is this universal sin problem. 
and chapter 321 through 5 is the universal declared innocent. Then chapter 6 up to about eight, 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 chapter 817 is the uh, sanctification. But then that last chunk of chapter 8, you referred to Pastor Strong, is that beautiful from verse 18 to the end, verse 39, where you have that assurance. Mm-hmm. The assurance, because the last part of this doctrine half is going to be chapter 9, 10, 11, which is on election, which we can talk about in a second. But this, when you think about memorable verses in the book, you know, you've got uh, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and uh, the just live by faith in verse 17. You've got chapter 2 about conscience. You've got chapter 3 about the awareness of the law, bring awareness of sin, and that whole uh, chapter 3, 21 to 24 about justification and uh, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've got in chapter 4 the justification statements that he has at the end of the chapter. You've got chapter 5 we mentioned before. Chapter 6 has those beautiful baptism statements and the wages of sin is death, chapter 7. But then you get to 8. Talk about things that people could memorize and keep with them from verse 1 to verse 18. But then think about that when you get to like you know, verse 21, all things work out for the good of those who love God. And verse 31, right? Who, uh, who shall separate, as it comes a little bit later, what, uh, how does that start in verse uh, 31 yet with, um, what shall we, what, what, sh- then what, shall we say in what should we say in response to this? Yeah. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with us graciously give us all things? And who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? For it's God who justifies. And who can condemn us? For Christ Jesus died, and more than that, was raised to life, and is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think it goes something like that. But that... That would be that would be something that I find myself when people are in trouble, you know, or sick, or hurting. When in doubt, go to Romans eight. <laughs> yeah, go, you know, that is just to me so stunning. And if it's it's worth, I remember sitting with Wanda Schmidt. This lady is in heaven, but her husband had been the principal of a Lutheran school. I think it might have been even Fairview, but she ended up at Grace in her later years, and then was a shut-in. And every time I visited her, uh, she would remind me of her confirmation passage, which was Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, and she'd quote it in German. (laughs) I think I said it in English, but I didn't say it in German, did I? No. But it it was so gorgeous to hear, and she would just, and that would bring tears to her eyes just to say those verses over and over in her head, what God has done for us, and we are more than conquerors. It's just, isn't that beautiful? (laughs) And that I used for her funeral. That was uh, the nice. text, you know, just because that was how she lived. That's how the assurance of the Christian, the comfort of the good news is stunning. And Paul has it all here in this letter. <laughs> wow. Yeah, chapter 8 is uh, one of my favorite chapters in, in all of Scripture because it's so rich in comfort and so yeah. simple to understand. You don't leave, It's not a head-scratcher. It's just here's the simple clear and wonderful gospel of Jesus. Do you remember in, uh, you you had a different uh, instructor at the seminary for this book, the Romans, we studied Romans, at least the first eight chapters in depth. And um, Paul's style of writing, it's almost a rhetorical style that he'll often use in this letter, like an imaginary person sitting with him and asking a question. So he'll write the question and have the answer. That's that style here, right? You can see in chapter eight. What shall we say in response to this? He's thinking somebody's going to ask. Well, then let me tell you, you know, (laughs) who shall separate us from, you know, he asked those. It's just a very engaging style of writing. And uh, I I think it's it's memorable and intense, but it's gorgeous how he does that. He conceives in his mind, sitting in Corinth, writing to these people, questions they might be asking. And so he writes the question and then he gives the answer. (laughs) I love that style. So what do you think about that whole election thing? How how easy is that to teach, chapters 9, 10, and 11? I think election's easy to teach, <laughs> but it's hard to understand <laughs> and grasp, right? I mean... Because you've got the microphone and you can say whatever you want, right? That's a great line. <laughs> Don't you think, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
I can tell you exactly what God says about election sure. and how he has chosen us from the beginning of time and has known us and we're his <laughs> own. Um, and he doesn't choose others to be condemned because that's of our own sinful nature. Uh-huh. But in a logical way, that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and we wrestle with, well, but if he chose me, then he must have chosen that person. Not have you run right into thing, people so. who've asked you, you know, I don't know, Pastor, I, if I'm one of the elect. Have you had people ask you that? Yeah. Yeah, and so how do you with that. so how do you, how do you help people wrestle with what do you say, Pastor Hockman, to people like that? <laughs> um, I usually point them to the means of grace. We if if God just had a random <laughs> selection process that we're not going to find out, like oh we get to Judgment Day and it's only left-handed people who are in heaven. Well, then that's <laughs> that's a problem. Uh, but the fact that God tells us He tells us that He's chosen. Uh, those that are going to be in heaven with him. But he also tells us how he does the choosing. There you and go. And he tells us the means that he uses. And so if I can identify uh, that I'm in the means of grace and that God has called me by the gospel and enlightened me with his gifts, uh, I don't have to I don't have to plague myself with the question, but what if I didn't make the cut? If if I'm asking the question and you're my pastor, I'd be so thrilled. That That's exactly what I do, too. I just really, that's just a... That's a great response, right? Because people who are going to be scratching their head about, am I one of the elect? Well, then, you know, I ask, do you know you're a sinner and deserve hell? Yeah. Do you know you're forgiven by Jesus? Yeah. Well, then you're one of the elect. <laughs> the I think oftentimes <laughs> the very fact they're asking that question probably means you're one of the elect, too, because if, if, if you not, weren't, you, you wouldn't be asking. Care, right? So, <laughs> I mean, it's like the, you know, how strong does my faith have to be? I don't know if I have a strong enough faith. Well, the fact that you're asking that question means that you have a faith. Yes. And you're concerned about it, right? And, you know, election is meant to, the mm-hmm. whole doctrine of election is meant to be a comfort to us. Yeah. I mean, what a joy to know that God has known me from the beginning of time and knew that right. I'd be his own and, and, and trust and believe in him. And, uh, and Paul does just what you said, Pastor Hockman, in these chapters, in verses 9, when he raises up the issue of election, wanting all of his fellow blood connected Jews to be saved, but he knows that many have been rejected. So how do the Gentiles get in? They're grafted. It's by an act of God's uh, undescribed and uh, undeserved love, I should say. But then in chapter 10, what does he do? Means of grace. You know, faith comes from hearing the message. As You know, how can they hear unless someone preaches? I mean, it's, it's all means of grace is exactly what gives people the comfort to know they're part of the elect. So that your answer was right in t- right. with how Paul writes it. I'll often get the follow-up, but yeah, but how do I know for sure? I, isn't it arrogant of me to call myself one of the elect? And um, I often will will say, well, Paul doesn't have any problem calling the churches that he writes to God's elect. <laughs> um, if Paul doesn't have any problem telling people who have had their hearts changed by the gospel that you're a part of the elect, then yeah. you shouldn't have a problem calling yourself that either. Right. right. You know, there's something in chapter 11, though, that I want you guys to... Uh, think about or talk about a little bit too in this podcast because while we don't maybe focus in on all the super interesting little every single verse by verse by verse in a podcast but when you get that one line when you're in chapter 11 in my bible let's see it's a left-hand page second calm down it's like around verse 25 or 6 all israel will be saved mm-hmm. is that my am i got the right yep. Yep. i'm sorry i don't have my bible over here but the um that that line has thrown people for a loop and that's one of the quickest ways to introduce people to what we call Bible interpretation, Bible meaning, Bible, the fancy word hermeneutic. How do you get the meaning from a passage? You connect it to other passages, and so you get the definition of who Israel really is. Earlier in this letter and Paul's other letters, that what he's referring to is not physically blood-descended DNA people from the Jewish race, but he's talking about believers who believe like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right. did. So all Israel means all believers will be saved. To be a child of Abraham doesn't mean to to literally be an ancestor of Abraham. Yeah. But you and I uh, are descendant. uh, It means to be a believer uh, in Christ. And we are children of Abraham and descent. Have you had people ask about that? Yeah. Who could tell us what real Israel means? Maybe you would. Jesus. Maybe we talk (laughs) about Jesus and and we could look at some of his. uh, Yeah. See who the true Israelites are. Yeah. I suppose if Jesus says that. Yeah. Look in John chapter eight. Yeah. But the the danger is if you take that literally, <laughs> then you're looking at well, uh, people of Israel, that nation of Israel, oh is a, boy, is a special nation, and, and I the, think that's some uh-huh. of the reasons we have the issues that we have. <laughs> there have been the Christians who've taken that, that passage with the scissors out of context, and then they right. think that the establishment of a physical nation of Israel in in the borders of what is con- considered uh, Israel today, Palestine, 
and then they'll all be converted to Christianity. And what? No, that's not what the Bible's saying here. That's not what Paul right. is writing. And in the context of the rest of Scripture, it's very clear. But I thought I'd mention that. You know, when you come to this doctrine section, and we've had universal sin, universal declared innocent justice, sanctification of assurance. And now we have this icing on the cake doctrine that, yes, you are. And God, by the way, by the way, God did it all, election. <laughs> by the way, he did it all. <laughs> it ends with, how would you end that? How about with a hymn? Right? Yeah. Oh, the Praise depth of the, the riches, Lord. right? Is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doxology at the end of chapter Isn't 11. You just uh, read that because that's just, uh, yeah. I don't have it in front of me right yeah. now. The depth of the riches and wisdom. Yep. Yeah. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him mm-hmm. and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You know, Amen. before you get to chapter 12 to the end and do this practical Christian living thing, anybody who's a podcast listener, any Christian, if you're reading through Romans, you just stop at the end of 11 and you run outside and you sing that hymn <laughs> and you jump up and down and you go, thanks be to God for my Savior Jesus and my Savior God, all oh, the depth yep. of the riches of so wisdom. So we're going to pause the podcast right now <laughs> while we run out. We're going to run outside. We're gonna we'll sing. be right back. We'll be right back. <laughs> Paul does do something that's a little risky. We'll have a mask on, though. Yes, yes. (laughs) Paul does do something that's a little risky here, though. He says amen in the middle of his sermon. That's that's always a little uh, chancy. Yeah. How many people? Wake everybody up again. How many people got this letter in Rome? You know, the kids are sitting in the front row listening (laughs) to being read, and they just say, okay, they stand up. They say, time for the creed. (laughs) He's done. But you can clearly see what he's doing, the transition here. We're leaving uh-huh. this this doctrinally meaty section yeah. and this this interlude of praise, as Paul often does. And then verse 12 starts with the word, therefore, therefore um, which points back. Right. Oh, I forget which seminary professor it was, said you always have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Yeah. Um, and that's always stuck in my head, and it yeah. points back. So. On the basis of I have all the same of this, professor, I'm sure that's on true. the basis of all of this. Now yep. what? Um, In view of God's mercy, yep. now live your life as a sacrifice right. to God, right? and that's where he's going. These next wow. chapters are the therefore. The but you just what now? And and you think about how you get people to change behavior, right? And you know you could get people to change their behavior by putting a gun to their head and threatening to blow their head off if they don't stop their bad language or beating their wife or using illegal substances. You know you could get them to stop their behavior with threats. Yeah, but but if you really want them to change, (laughs) change them on the inside and get them to Romans chapters one to eleven and let them dance in the streets and sing that praise psalm. Then their heart is changed because of what God did. Then chapter twelve to the end is like, this is what I want to do and I can't wait. And I love that because that's the motivation. It's, that's it's, it's it. a change of heart. I mean, any of this, you know, so, so often we get in in our world and society, and even in Christian churches, we sure. get confused as to what sanctification looks like because oftentimes we think it's driven by who I am and what I do for God. But here we're seeing it's flowing out of what God, and who he is and what he's done for us. That's beautifully said. And you can't have it the other way. I mean, once you mm-hmm. know God and what he's done for you, man, I do want to, I do have a change of heart in life. Isn't it interesting how he starts, though, this Christian living section that with that first verse, and I love the way you brought that up, Pastor, talking about the therefore, what's it there for? <laughs> but in view of God's mercy, right? And then he goes right into, now there's an internal change, and guess what? Inside of you, not only this faith and now this desire, but also will be the equipment, the, the, the spiritual gifts. And that's right in the beginning of chapter 12, right? And it's yep. how that plays out, how am I going to live with fellow Christians, all the way, I'm thinking that goes about up to chapter 12, verse 12-ish. You know, live in harmony with one another. And then there's a little shift, right? In, I don't remember the exact verse, but be, before 12 ends and into 13, now how am I going to live in the world? Because then there's, you know, don't have vengeance on your enemies and all that kind of stuff. But 13 is the whole government section. And is that going to be important, do you think, for people thinking about um, COVID mandates and and uh, safer at home and school openings that we have a better understanding of what God has intended for us with the blessings of civil government? <laughs> Absolutely. But what if I think the government's unfair? Read Romans 13. <laughs> <laughs> In view of the previous chapters, right? Okay. <laughs> that, was really, that was really funny. <laughs> 
I always find find it interesting. What government is Paul talking about? What's the government as he's writing these words? Submit to the government. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, Nero and yep. persecuting and killing Christians, but that's the government that Paul says this uh-huh. is from God, and God's got His purposes, and, yeah. and you submit to them. Um, makes me think that perhaps it's not as hard as I. Maybe yeah. once thought to submit to the we Americans, that God's given to me. We wring our hands because of the political divide in America and what candidate to vote for or not. And, well, as churches, we don't weigh in on that. People are free as Christians to make their own decisions. And, oh, the bad choices we had, da-da-da. But how about you had no choice <laughs> and you had Nero? <laughs> and he writes about That's just, that's really a good statement you had there, Pastor Hockman. About chapter 13, and that, that continues on in his living in the world. and um, But I think that's pretty much through 13. But 14 and 15 are, now what am I going to do as a Christian? How do I live with those who are, I hate to use the word, but he does, you know, the weak in faith, you know, those who are struggling and those who maybe don't have the same understanding of adiaphora or things that God hasn't talked about. How do I, how do I inter act with those folks wow then you get chapters 14 and 15 huh it's really about selfless being selfless you know putting putting others and their needs in mm-hmm. front of yours even though you're strong enough and you understand it and you get it and you could you could do some of these these things that god doesn't say or command or forbid you could do them with a, a clean heart and conscience maybe for the sake of somebody else mm-hmm. i'm gonna put those aside so i can help them grow in their faith right you quote some passages to defend your behavior and and justify it, but if it's not a spirit of love for for those who aren't as strong or don't have that mm-hmm. same perspective, um, all your Bible quotes are, yeah. are missing the point. I think it's in chapter 15, like around 6 and 7, where he talks about then that unity of spirit that we can have together if we live in love. And he wraps that section up. Isn't that interesting? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Mm-hmm. That you may flow with, overflow with hope. It's just, I think that this is such a masterful letter what he's written for us here, and I don't know if you have any other comments about chapters thirteen, fourteen, or fourteen, fifteen about that. But the last chapter is is those greetings we mentioned before, right. but wedged in at verse seventeen is the big passage that we often use for the doctrine church fellowship, which is not an easy Bible doctrine to grasp and to think through and to live that's watch out for those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching you've learned and then keep away from them it's said like that right isn't it mm-hmm. so it, it, uh, interesting in the context that here's all these people that he's enjoyed fellowship and relationship mm-hmm. and 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 this unity with and then th- that's like the positive verse 1 through 16 is like <laughs> the positive side of fellowship right <laughs> Uh, look at this blessed relationship that that can um, can result through unity in the gospel, but there are those that could jeopardize that. There yep. are those that are going to seek to have that when it's not based on on a, a common confession of faith. And yeah, watch out for those who who don't have that in mind or don't don't cherish the mm-hmm. the Christian doctrine the way that you do. The passage reads as it does. There's been debate about it and people who have written large uh, and lengthy essays when we've had the discussion of the doctrine of church fellowship with fellow Christians over the history of our Lutheran church body and with fellow Lutherans even. But it is it is there in the Bible for a reason, because God wants us to hold to the truth and all of it, not some of it, and not lose it, and not get uh, tainted by the cancer of false doctrine, which can weed its way in, and be out of love for others. And we don't want them to fall into error and to think that it's not a big deal when it is. Yeah. I think it's worth talking what what does, or it's worth saying, I should say, um, what does keep away from them mean? Does this mean ostracize, keep them at <laughs> arm's length, don't have any relationship, don't talk to them, pretend they don't exist? No, that's not what, it's not what at all. Paul's saying. But he's saying don't engage in church fellowship activities. Don't have the same... Um, unit or fellowship that you have with these people that I just listed and, and these yeah. churches that are together confessing the faith of the truth and, and right. proclaiming that gospel together. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Don't act as if you share that with people that you don't. You don't have to walk in the other side of the street. You can be certainly kind and friendly (laughs) and caring, but to make it look like you're one spiritually when you're not is dishonest. Right. Yep. That's a good way of saying that. Yeah. And and that has an impact then on on how we do everything from membership transfers to whether it's Bible information class or just a, you know, that kind of thing. We make decisions on that. Uh, Who participates in the Lord's Supper, um, how we carry out worship and who are the worship leaders. All it has an impact. And then with whom we worship and pray and that. So that mission work looks like. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What mission work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who you partner with. And so this is, this is quite the, quite the letter and it's just fun we could go all day just maybe just reading it again out loud or just talking about certain individual passages but i think we've covered pretty much the gamut of the 16 chapters of this most powerful and beautiful new testament letter so what what final comments would you have to podcasters about this letter pastor strong read it and read it again (laughs) and again i mean it's just you're reading through it, and I don't know how many times I've read through it. I don't have it quite memorized like you do, um, <laughs> but definitely certain sections. But just, you know, every time I read it, you know, it brings joy to your heart. Yeah, it does. You know, and, and so just keep reading it. If we had one book, I guess, is, or from the Bible, yep. this would probably be the one yep. hang on to, right? Yep. I would say to people that, you know, if you had chapter 3, verses 23, 24, chapter 6, verse 23, and then the end of chapter 8, memorize those for the big doctrine stuff and then the assurance passages. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are to me the key that you holding that your heart hold that in your heart like that little grandma I told you about in her confirmation passage. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. Do you have any big thoughts yet on the end of the Romans this? What is it what does it do for you, yeah, Pastor? Hockey? I think t- for me it's just there's joy in law and gospel that um if it's just law, there's not. I've got no hope. I might as well despair. But there's gospel. Yeah. Um, there's joy in confessing sins and receiving the forgiveness that that our God has promised, um, and that's life changing. Uh, and I can now live my life for the one who lived his life for me. I can now live my life with joy, knowing that um, heaven is my eternal home. Um, just simple and profound. Um, the, these doctrines that. I can't do it on my own, but God did it for me. And, and you're now. living proof. If there's one person I know who lives his life with joy, that would be Pastor Hockman, wouldn't you, you say? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's great. And the good thing we know about the entire book. You can say it. It's this is most, most certainly, certainly true. true. We are glad to have you with us on the same page. And we'd love to share more about God's love with you. Check us out at gracedowntown.org. There you'll find worship times, our pastor's contact info, and a lot about our ministry in and to downtown Milwaukee. We hope to connect you to the grace of God again sometime soon. Come back to Grace to grow from our online or in-person ministries.